Welcome to The Lit Review, a podcast sparked by a moment of urgency, recognizing mass political education as key for our liberation struggles. Every week, your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad, will chat with people we love and respect about relevant books for the movement. Everything from history to theories around gender to sci-fi and beyond. We know that political study is not accessible for a variety of reasons. The high cost of books, academic jargon, the failures of our underfunded school systems, time barriers, etc. Our hope is that this podcast helps address some of those issues, making critical knowledge more accessible to the masses. Think Sparknotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May. Thanks for listening. The book we're talking about is At the Dark End of the Street, Black Women, Rape, and Resistance, A New History of the Civil Rights Movement from Rosa Parks to the Rise of Black Power by Daniel McGuire. So today we're with one of my mentors, uh, someone who taught me a lot about the organizing that I do and how to do it, and also a lot about history and actually pushed me towards this book a few years ago. It has fundamentally changed how I understand the civil rights movement and why it, um, why it took place and how it took place as powerfully as it did. And I'm really excited to talk with her today. Thank you, Miriam. Can you. you start, can you let us know what led you to read this book? Sure. Um, I heard about the book several years ago, um, and I think I might have seen the author talking about the book on C-SPAN, I think it was. I was really intrigued um, because I'm very interested in the history of black liberation um, and the, black, the long black freedom movement, and I hadn't really read anything before that addressed it from this particular perspective that the author was coming from. So I was curious, I got the book, I read it, and I was just blown away because there was so much in there that I didn't know, even though I had spent a long time reading about the civil rights movement. Um, and I guess we'll get into it a little bit later uh, to talk more about those things that were surprising. Um, but that was, and then I just became an evangelist for telling people to read the book. <laughs> so, so that's probably how you got to uh, be forced into reading it. <laughs> also, that introduction was so inadequate. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do before we get into this amazing book? Because uh, I think people need to understand why it's so wonderful that we're talking to you about this. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Sure. Um, my um, organizing has uh, been steeped in uh, addressing um, violence against women and girls um, since the, I would say, the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, I found myself working in domestic violence organizations um, and in rape crisis organizations starting in college. And that has been a through line in my life uh, since then. I've worked both in the field and outside of it, um, but it's been kind of a foundational aspect of my organizing. Um, and it was through my organizing around violence against girls and young women that I came to abolition, um, to the abolition of prisons and policing and surveillance. Um, and so I always credit uh, the work that I was doing in anti-violence, uh, gender-based violence work as my the catalyst that pushed me into organizing against prisons, um, which is probably what most people uh, know my work as today. Um, but I like to kind of go back to how my roots um, and the roots of my work, um, and so gender-based violence has been central to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
And if you're not following uh, Miriam on Twitter, you should do that at Prison Culture. I feel like the whole world is following you. Um, <laughs> but so cool. So th- I think this actually is one of our first episodes where we've all read the book. Um, it's a really amazing book. Uh, I love it personally just because it really tells um, the importance of storytelling as a mode of resistance and testimony as a mode of resistance. Um, and so I know that in this book, she's really trying to expand the definition of the civil rights movement with this narrative. Um, and if anything, it actually she's talking about how it gives birth to the civil rights movement. So can you just quickly walk us through the book? Um, how does she guide us through this critical history? Sure. Um, so I, I would say the book is mostly an analysis of sexual violence um, in uh, the history of the long civil rights movement. That's you know of kind of a synopsis of what the book is. Um, her premise is basically that we've heard a lot of stories of violence against black and white men um, who were part of the civil rights movement or the black freedom movement. Um, and so you know when we think about that, if you ask people. If you probably read a series of names out to people um, as to who they know of in the civil rights movement, um, that the list of men would be would be very familiar to people. People might know Emmett Till um, and his lynching, and people might know uh, the case of Schwerner and Goodman and Cheney, and people might know of you know a, a whole bunch of other names, um, but they wouldn't necessarily think of Recy Taylor or they wouldn't necessarily think of um, uh, uh, Betty Owens. Um, they wouldn't necessarily think of other people who were also uh, you know, victims of violence within the, within the history of the long black freedom struggle. Um, and so she kind of really wants us to think about sexual violence as a tool of oppression. Um, but most importantly for her book, uh, that it was a political impetus for the movement that we now understand to be the civil, the modern civil rights movement. That at the foundation of that was really a, a fight around it, sexual violence against black women. Um, and that if we don't understand that, because it somehow has been erased from the histories of to the telling of the civil rights movement, then we can't really understand what motivated people and why people did the things that they did. So um, she looks specifically in this book at um, you know, it's, a, it's got seven chapters in it. Uh, the chapters involve, uh, you know, Reese Taylor's story, which we can talk about later, Betty Owens' story, which we can talk about as well. Um, she l- looks at uh, Fannie Lou Hamer's role in the black freedom movement and ties it to the question and issues of sexual violence. Um, she tells a story about Joan Little in the 1970s um, being a galvanizing case uh, of cross-movement coalition building, the largest mass movement of um, in support of uh, a black woman who was uh, a victim of state violence in the history of the, the country is what Joan Little's uh, defense committee was. Um, and then she you know also looks at the ways that um, things like we, that we take for granted, like the bus boycott, and its roots and the ways that that bus boycott emerges from the infrastructure that was created before 
many a decade before um, around supporting and protecting black womanhood. Um, so it's a book that really, I think, turns on its head uh, our understanding of the foundations of the black freedom struggle, that modern day black freedom struggle that you can date to, you know, I think um, Brown versus the Board of Education, which is usually 1954 is what people think of, and then, you know, move into the bus boycott and et cetera. That's how people tell the story. She goes before that and really lays the groundwork for a new rethinking and a retelling. So I remember reading, I think it's actually the first chapter she talks about Reese Taylor. She does. And um, I, it, it changed how I understood Martin Luther King. Like mm -hmm. you can't understand King if you don't understand what happened to Reese Taylor. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what happened to her and how they're connected? Yeah, um, so Reese Taylor um, is a black woman who um, was coming home from church. Um, she lives in um, nearby Abbeville, Alabama. And uh, she is abducted by a group of four men um, who basically, you know, take a gun, put it to her head, and tell her to get into the car. Um, the men then take her into kind of a patch, you know, kind of like a, the woods somewhere, um, and uh, they proceed to rape her several times. I think the book says something like seven times um, she's raped. And um, she somehow makes it out alive. She is blindfolded and dropped off on the side of town and she ends up walking uh, back to her uh, to her community where she tells her father and her husband what has happened to her she also tells uh, uh, the sheriff um, what has happened to her um, and it's really just an example actually she's she's raped gang raped by six men um, and uh, she's, you know, she's 24 years old. This happens in 1944 in September. Um, and uh, the interesting thing about her story is that um, it gets to the NAACP, and uh, a woman named Rosa Parks is <laughs> exactly, yay Rosa, a woman named Rosa Parks is sent down to uh, Abbeville to get her story. I thought the book gives an interesting uh, tidbit about the fact that when Rosa Parks arrives and goes and talks with Reese Taylor and her family, um, people, the sheriff comes and actually removes Rosa Parks from her living room to say, we don't want any troublemakers here, right? Because the association of the NAACP at that point is with the communists, even though the NAACP is strongly anti-communist, and that has its own history and legacy. but. Um, yeah, so the, she's run out of there. Um, she gets the notes that she can get, and she returns back um, to Montgomery. And at that point, she goes and tells other people the story. Um, and some uh, Edie Nixon, who becomes really, really critical and important later on in the struggle, um, and several other people, including the publisher of an Alabama newspaper, um, uh, E.G. Jackson, uh, Rufus Lewis, and Rosa Parks form the Committee for Equal Justice for Mrs. Reese Taylor. And that committee on a local level um, is like kind of becomes an incubator for national interest in the issue of sexual violence against black women. Other uh, committees form in other parts of the country, um, but particularly in the South. And um, people start to fight on her behalf. They try to pu uh, push the uh, governor, Governor Sparks of Alabama, to uh, 
to push for an investigation and to push for a, an actual trial. Um, and, the, and they start a postcard um, and petition writing uh, campaign. Um, and one of the things I found really interesting about the story of V.C. Taylor, which I did not know about before reading this book, um, is that uh, the, some of the men in, um, who were fighting in World War II, um, some of the black soldiers, threatened uh, to stop fighting, to lay down their arms if the state of Alabama did not take these six men, try them, and bring justice to V.C. Taylor. I think that's interesting, right, because that kind of troubles a lot of the language and the, the, the thinking that people offer about black men and their role uh, in terms of defending black women and in terms of caring about black women's being you know, sexually violated, by, particularly by white men. Um, I never knew that part about like, you know, these men who were overseas who heard about this story and were like, this ain't going to happen, right? And that caused a crisis, frankly, at home um, with the governor being like, am I going to be responsible for people basically losing the war? Mm -hmm. um, and that pushed them into having these grand jury um, um, inquests. And uh, two times they go through and the grand jury refuses to indict, mm -hmm. um, which is not surprising. Black women had been being sexually violated and raped by white men for decades before that with impunity. Um, so her not getting, quote, justice to the courts is actually the norm, right? Um, it's still the norm today, um, but it was particularly the norm at that time. Um, but the, the infrastructure that they created through those committees to defend V.C. Taylor become incredibly important later on. Um, and so that's a little bit of her story. Mm -hmm. It's 11 years later, right, is the Montgomery bus boycott, mm -hmm. where then MLK is brought in. And that's, that's where we start hearing the story of Rosa Parks and MLK. But that's only made possible because of that infrastructure, is what you're saying. That's right. right. It, well, the infrastructure itself had a lot of the key leaders who end up coming back and being key leaders in the Montgomery bus boycott. Because when, one thing that she also points out in the book is that the Montgomery bus boycott is led, strategized, and uh, kind of brought to its uh, success by black women at every level. And it was because black women had been sexually harassed for years on buses by bus drivers. It was because black women had had to suffer the indignities of not being seen as women. Um, and that was important, which is why I think also we have to like, in this day and age, in the way that we talk about gender and the way we talk about being women, we have to understand the real uh, kind of uneven distribution of access to womanhood that has always existed in this country. And so when you're talking about black women, you cannot talk with them on par as how white women have accessed womanhood. womanhood. Black women have been fighting basically to unqueer themselves in the culture for as long as we've been here. Um, and, you know, Angela Davis speaks to this. I mean, other people have written these much better about this stuff. Al you know, Sarah Haley in her book, No Mercy Here, does a really good job of understanding and unpacking what gender and sexuality really mean for black women and how that has been uh, denied for so long. Uh, and I don't think still exists today for us mm -hmm. in the same way that it does for white women. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, that is a huge part of this fight. Um, that McGuire brings up around the respectability politics and all those kinds of issues that black women have had to navigate in order to allow themselves to be seen and taken seriously and seen as human. Mm -hmm. 
that's been a consistent struggle and fight, and that comes across very much in this book, mm-hmm. um, all the way through and across and across. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I want to unpack a little bit more around Rosa Parks and the image that has been created around her, um, yeah. because I know that you know this book talks about how she was actually a very militant activist um, back home in, in Montgomery, and but then you know at post. Um, boycott of the buses she's seen as this very like she is the domestic figure right like oh just a domestic worker a mother domestic worker that was just really tired and just wanted to sit on the bus and didn't want to get up right and totally just erased her decades and decades of activism I want to I want to get there but I also just she mentions reconstruction era politics a lot um, and just like you know I think that that if you could explain a little more what she means by that because I think that would give us sort of um, a context of the environment into which all of this is happening sure Um, so I think Reconstruction is one of the most important eras in um, American history. Mm-hmm. It, it just is. Um, I don't think you could understand how we are, how we got to where we are without understanding that period. Mm-hmm. Um, and Reconstruction is, te- is you know, um, is generally like pegged at post-emancipation 1866 until 1877 though there's a lot of revision of that history now that actually tries to extend reconstruction era to Plessy versus up until Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 so kind of looking at the long reconstruction rather than that very short 11 year period or 10 year period that people often cite um, during that time every question that we have about um, whether or not black people are citizens in this country can be traced back to Reconstruction era politics. Um, the 14th and 15th Amendments are passed during that period of time. The 14th Amendment is the amendment that every other group in this country that has come in since Reconstruction that immigrated to this country, the 14th Amendment is what people have used to dis- assert their rights assert their right to equal rights. Um, that's black people, you know what I mean? Like that that came out of the struggles of black people. The 1875 Civil Rights Act, uh, which gave black people lots of the rights to like sit on, um, on public transit, um, to have the right to have, uh, you know, um, uh, public facilities accommodate us, et cetera, that got overturned after uh, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. That's a reconstruction era fight you know, that people fought in one. The fact that black people were uh, in politics and representing, and in some places, significantly in the state legislatures, right, all of a sudden after um, emancipation, that's a Reconstruction era fight. Um, everything we want to try to understand about the role between the federal government and the state government is fought over during Reconstruction, you know? Um, like, what is the proper role of the federal government? The federal government pulls out in 1877 from the South and is like, black people, you're on your own, right? Like, we're not going to give you the protection of the union. Uh, the states have the right to do whatever the hell they want, right? Um, and so that, so the states, you know, are passing black codes and vagrancy codes. Like, they're actually re-inscribing enslavement in, just in the law, right? Um, and they're doing that during Reconstruction. Everything we ever wanted to know about terrorism, in terms of domestic terrorism, you have to understand Reconstruction to understand what we are talking about. The KKK is running rampant during Reconstruction. That's when they come into being. Mm-hmm. They're out there harassing people, but they're also raping black women, um, which comes up in Danielle McGuire's book as well. So if you're trying to understand homegrown terrorism, you've got to understand the Reconstruction era, 
you know, um, and I'd say probably also the relationships between politics, economics, and democracy. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the period of time that inscribes so much of what we're doing. And the last thing I would say is Reconstruction Era is also the time when black people build the institutions that will actually be the institutions that hold us in from then on. So the, the institutions like um, churches, um, public schools, um, newspapers, right? There are 200 daily newspapers, black newspapers, by the time of the 1880s. 200 newspapers being published daily, written and run by black people. Black people are trying to emancipate ourselves and share information about our lives and transmit that information far and wide. Ida B. Wells is writing for a ton of papers at the time, right? Those are not white papers. Those are papers owned by black people, including herself. She was an owner of a paper. So people understood that information made the difference, that that was what was going to make sure that we were actually going to be freed and free in this country, because we were going to be able to tell our stories to people. We were going to be able to control our own narratives, right? They understood that. So people who had just been enslaved 20 years before understood enough about that to do that. So that's why I always say to people, you know, what's our excuse now for not having our own arms of communication? When people who had nothing and no ability to read and write 20 years before are like literally are creating literacy quickly, sending their kids to school quickly to be able to, able to participate in fully in, in the citizenship that they hoped they thought they had gotten. Um, so, but the standard view up until the 1960s about Reconstruction was that it had been a mistake and a failure. That, but it had been a mistake and a failure to give black people the right to vote. That that was the problem with Reconstruction. Um, and uh, you know, a noble effort to try to build a multiracial democracy, but too bad these black ignorant savages couldn't like keep it up. You know, that had been like the standard way that they told the story. It's not until um, Black Reconstruction by Du Bois comes into like its own, um, even though it's it's published in the 1930s, and he really re reinscribes like asks us to think about. Um, the end of slavery as really uh, a general strike of black people who refuse to continue to get their labor exploited. Like it's when that book comes into being that all of a sudden people are now revisiting what is Reconstruction and its importance to black people's you know, history in this country. So um, when she's talking about it, she's talking about it also as a time of Ida B. Wells' rise. Mm -hmm. Even though Ida B. Wells is born in only 1862, um, she uh, comes of age during Reconstruction. And the re that has a real impact on who she is and what she sees as important. So Wells is the first black woman and the first black woman intellectual who makes the vulnerabilities of black women's sexuality public. She talks about it publicly. People are not happy about that, including some black people. Because she's not just making the case that the story of, that people are giving about why lynching has occurred is like a lie and belied by the fact that all these white men are lynching, are raping black women and not being lynched. But she's also saying that, you know what, some white women in black want to have sex with black men. Like, they, they want interracial relationships. So, yeah. And white people are definitely not happy about that because they're obsessed with miscegenation uh, and the end of the white race. Um, and uh, black people aren't happy because they're like, uh, please don't bring that up. You know what I mean? Like, don't talk about that in public. Don't talk about sex in public. Don't talk about rape in public. She's talking about all of that in public in the fucking 1880s and 90s, you know? So, like, that's really important to understand. And so McGuire is kind of giving people a sense of that 
Um, also trying to understand the tensions between the, the fact that um, black women had this culture of dissemblance, something that uh, Darlene he uh, Clark Hines, who's a, a historian, a black historian, uh, writes about, about how black women have had to kind of like keep their uh, the rapes and, and the assaults um, underneath the surface and not talk about it. But it wars with this culture, this uh, existence of a culture of testimony that has always also existed. Um, and she really does something where she talks about basically sexual violence and rape as a form of uh, testimony, about as a form as a direct action. Mm -hmm. We talk about direct action a lot today, but that that the, the the testimonials that Black women gave during Reconstruction when they were being assaulted um, gave to congressional you know, to congressional investigators after the Memphis riots of 1866, that those were direct actions, right? And that makes us have to rethink what we understand direct action to be, right, as well. So, yeah. So we got Ida B. Wells, Rosa Parks, all recognizing the importance of storytelling, getting, you know, first-person personal narratives out into the public in order to eff effectively create social change. Yeah. Um, and we also know that the Montgomery boys, bus boycott then actually comes from decades of black women's activism, right? And, and in this book, you know, it, she talks about, I think it's the second chapter, um, she talks about, she says, the Montgomery bus boycott frequently regarded as the spark plug of the modern civil rights movement was actually the end of a drive chain that ran back into decades of black women's activism. This supposedly, quote, spontaneous event was, in fact, the culmination of a deep history of gendered mm -hmm. political appeals, frequently bled by black veterans for the protection of African-American women from sexual and physical assault. Um, and so I, you know, when learning about this, of course, in high school or in grade school, I always thought of Montgomery Bo bus boycott as like, oh, that's what started the civil rights movement, right? That's what we just all think. Um, but in reality, we, this book really tells us it wasn't, right? It gives us more of a narrative um, of, of black women's activism. Um, so can you just maybe talk a little bit about um, Rosa Parks mm -hmm. um, and, and who, why was her image changed so, um, so quickly mm -hmm. um, post, um, you know, um, not giving up her seat on the bus, right? Sure. So why was it changed? Who sort of wanted the image change? Mm -hmm. um, and what were her feelings about that? Sure. So Rosa Parks is really important um, because she's really um, one of the first black women uh, criminal punishment reformers um, that we know of, like, that are, that in, uh, you know, it, during the Jim Crow era, at least, you know, Ida B. Wells is, is prior to that. But um, Rosa Parks, you know, grows up in a house uh, raised by a grandfather who's a Garveyite. That's important. Um, because Garveyites, Garvey's movement was the largest, and still is to this day, the largest movement of uh, black-led movement in the U.S. history, in U.S. history, is Garvey's movement, which is a movement, um, UNIA, his organization, is a movement about uh, self-improvement, uh, self-defense, black capitalism, you know, that, they, that black people can better ourselves by ourselves for ourselves, right? Um, and it's a deep sense of racial pride. Um, that is animating that movement. So she grows up in that kind of environment, in that house. She always saw herself as a black person with power, right? Her grandfather is sitting in front of his house, uh, repelling the, the KKK with his Winchester, you know? Um, so that image of Malcolm later on with that gun spoke to Rosa Parks in such a way that that's why she always loved him. You know, she always defended Malcolm um, against people, including King. Um, 
So she, uh, when she goes out and she does this kind of investigatory work for the NAACP, she's following the tradition of Wells directly, it's her direct lineage, right, to what Wells was doing when she went to Arkansas and she went to other places to take, take people's testimonies right after lynchings had occurred. Um, and she's the secretary not just of, this is important, not just of the NAACP, but also of the Pullman Porter, the Brotherhood of um, Porters, you know? So she's also a labor activist. She's also, you know, so she's, she's doing a whole bunch of other things, not just, um, ju not just even being the secretary of the, the NAACP. Um, and Parks, I think it's interesting because her um, taking a stand or resisting in the, on the bus boycott in December 1st of 1955 is not planned. And I think even the people who are now doing the revision of the revision are like talking about like she was such a, she was a, she'd been an activist basically coming into her own when she met her husband in the 1930s. They'd worked for uh, the Scottsboro Boys. Um, uh, their defense, they were doing defense committee work to let these boys who had been falsely accused of rape um, uh, to make sure that they actually were able to be freed. She begins her, that's where she begins her activism. That's like in the 1930s. But the day she decides not to get up from the bus is not, she didn't go on the bus that December 1st and say, I'm not going to get off the bus. It just so happens that a guy who was a bus driver at the time who had harassed her years before, 12 years before that in 1943, was the bus driver that day who told, who got on her nerves. And she's like, I ain't getting up. I'm not going to get up. And they, they forcibly removed her. And when Edie Nixon hears that they arrested Rosa Parks, he could not be happier, right? Why? Because Joanne Robinson, who's one of the chief strategists of Montgomery, had wanted him to start the boycott earlier with a young woman named Col uh, Claudette Colvin, who she had been forcibly removed. She was 15 years old, forcibly removed. She goes to trial. And she actually is the one who's charged with um, disorderly conduct and all this other kind of stuff. And so now the community is like all gung-ho and they want to go after the bus companies and they want to do this. And so, you know, Joanne Robinson and her group go over to Edie Nixon and they're like, this is our time. Let's go with, with this woman. And he looks at her and he says, oh no, we're not doing that. This is a 15-year-old girl from a bad part of town who's pregnant. She's not the right person for us to put up as the poster child. And Joanne Robinson is Furious, and she's going at E.D. Nixon. And Rosa Parks says, you know what? He, he's right, right? This is before she takes her stand. It's like, he's right. Because why does she come up? Why does Rosa say that at that time? Because not only is she an uh, organizer, she's a strategist. She realizes that they are in the wake now of the 1954 um, uh, Brown v. Board of Education decision, which caused enormous backlash in the South, enormous backlash. Backlash that led to people, more women getting raped. Backlash that, learned, uh, you know, that led to black people being afraid because the cops were coming after them and other people were coming after them. And they knew that during, in that particular historical moment, to put somebody up as the poster child of blackness and true womanhood who'd been assaulted, they needed somebody with an impeccable reputation. And Mrs. Parks was that for them. Church going, smart. You know, and they needed to erase her radicalism in order for her to be seen as the cult of true womanhood figure they needed for people to rally around. Joanne Robinson always still believed that Claudette Colvin would still have been a good marker because people had supported other women 
Gertrude Perkins as one who'd been raped by in Montgomery by two police officers. People had come to Gertrude, per Gertrude Perkins' defense. So she thought Colvin would also get that. But the national folks who were looking to this as a national struggle were like, mm, no, we got to have a respectable person because they're gonna come after this person, they're gonna dig up dirt on them, and we need somebody who's beyond reproach in order to push this thing forward. And they were right. So that is a, um, that's a tension that we still deal with today um, when we're not organizing, you know, in terms of poster children for struggle and how that person, and, and the respectability politics, which people don't actually understand, and they use that word, and it's a problem, because they don't understand what it means in its context, and what um, Evelyn Higginbotham was really talking about when she coined the term. Um, but that is, that's really, really important there. So anyway, so they erased her radicalism mainly because they needed a poster child that was beyond reproach, that could be put up there on a pedestal for people to look at, and to like be wanting to, willing to fight for, to walk, to work for, not only for her, but for themselves. Um, and so that's, that's part of what happened. And also, because King um, was targeted. He did come in. He was an organizer. He wasn't just, you know, people are now like yelling about whether King was an activist or he was an organizer. I mean, I, I don't know what we're arguing about. Um, and, he, and he came in and he was targeted by the state and they took it and put it on a trial for conspiracy to like, you know, I, don't, I forgot what the charges were, but he was found guilty, and they were actually, they put him down for one year of hard labor and a fine. And when he came out of that trial, um, people were rushing to him, like the New York Times printed this big media piece about like King as the savior and Jesus on a cross, and they started putting that terminology around him, et cetera, et cetera, and that actually erased then the, the origins of the Montgomery bus boycott and made it into a struggle by ministers. Um, and mostly black men, ministers. And that erased Joanne Robinson, it erased Mrs. Parks' real radical role, et cetera, et cetera, into, until really, until this book came out that refocused us and gave us that history back again, so. I have several questions that I'm gonna try to put together, but I think it'll sound disjointed and I just trust you will be <laughs> able to make sense of it. Okay. But it's, a, I, okay, so part of what I'm thinking right now is like why why is this history of the civil rights movement, why has it been erased? Mm -hmm. and, and what is sort of the main lesson of when we bring it back into our, our understanding of how that change happened? What does that offer, right? What does that show? Um, and then at the same time, and I think that's important because of this word you've used, lineage, right? Where even this moment, right, has direct roots to things that were happening before, right, with Ida B. Wells, right? And so what is the lineage of this struggle in defense of black women's um, you know, personhood and, and, and sexual identities, right? And freedom from rape and sexual violence. What is the lineage that we see today? And, mm -hmm. and I think the third piece is around, there's this difference that I've been thinking a lot about, the difference between like uh, spectacle and how that relates to respectability, but how you have to be strategic, right? And how that is a part of, mm -hmm. of, of getting people to do what you need them to do versus testimony, versus exposure, right? Um, but then all, the importance at the root of that, I see it's about defense. It's, it's not just, you know, we're telling the story for the sake of telling the story. There's a campaign there. Yeah. And I'm thinking about Marissa Alexander. I'm mm -hmm. thinking about Brescia Meadows. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm thinking about Cece McDonald, right? And how um, what, yeah, so, so I think th th there's something in this history that if you don't know, read this book or right. know this history, you misunderstand what's so important about Brescia Meadows right now. Right. No, I think that's really true. And the thing that this book really does so well um, is the, the question of lineage, telling that story of like 
this thing, you know, V.C. Taylor's case, all these folks who were part of the Montgomery Improvement Association became leaders cutting their teeth through organizing for that. They brought that into the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, the folks in, um, she talks about Betty Jean Owens, right, in Tallahassee, Florida, who gets raped by four, black, uh, four white men, um, and actually they're convicted, um, uh, which is she sees as a watershed moment around issues of uh, black women and sexuality and violence. But the lineage of that, the Betty Jean Owens fight and the, the students at Florida A&M University who were the catalyst for pushing that case forward, they then uh, begin uh, a lunch counter uh, desegregation effort uh, shortly, like literally a few weeks after the verdict of that trial. So people are learning, their, they're getting their skills, they're developing their analysis from fights that happened before the fight that we understand to be the winning one. Right? And that's, I think, one of the most important parts of this book to explain to us that that's the case. So linking to your question about defense and defense committees, all the way through this book, you, you um, see the different examples of defense campaigns uh, that were put into uh, being to defend, quote, black womanhood. Okay, whatever people feel about that word. That was the language of the time that people were using. Um, and she brings up the case of um, the story of uh, people who were part of a very short-lived but very important black woman-led, particularly black women who were affiliated with the Communist and Socialist Party. And it's called Sojourner, um, Sojourners for Justice and Truth. Um, an organization that saw themselves as in the lineage of um, both Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, um, an organization that was led by a very formidable woman uh, who was very complicated, um, who is friends or contemporaries with Ida B. Wells. Her name is Mary Church Terrell. She lives until she's like in her 90s. Um, and here is uh, what is said uh, in page, uh, for in the hardcover, 66 of the page, uh, says this, as part of the campaign to protect black womanhood, uh, the STJ, so uh, Sojourners for Truth and Justice, called for the immediate freedom of Rosalie Ingram, a black sharecropper widow and mother of 12, who was convicted and sentenced to death in the self-defense slaying of a white man in Ellaville, Georgia on November 4th. 1947. A lot of these organizations were taking up the defense of black women who either when they were sexually assaulted fought back or were sexually assaulted in, with impunity, right? Um, and they embody kind of this uh, importance of care for people who are harmed and a way to publicize through their cases larger social forces at work. That's what defense committees can do if they're done right, is that it takes the case of one person and it says it's not just this one person. It's all black women who are targeted. We all were raped at one point. That's what someone, a uh, person quoted in the story of Betty uh, Owens says. It's like, it was like we were all raped. Defense campaigns are about that. It's about not being an ally, but being in community. It's about coming together in this real way. My friend Dina Lewis says that all the time about like allyship makes it a separate thing. Um, like you're coming to somebody's assistance, but then you're going back into your own little place. And being in community with people means that we're tied to each other. Our existence, our, uh, you know, our, our uh, pain, our, it's like 
it's integrally linked. It's interdependent. We rise or fall together. Defense committees are the best ones make that case for people. Um, they're not just about legal defense. They're not just about raising money. They're not just about raising awareness. They're about making a statement about how we interact with each other in the world. And so Rosalie Ingram's case, you know, uh, uh, defense committee is also the defense committee brings in the issue of prisons and prisoners, right? Uh, a thing that's very important and, and uh, McGuire brings up in the book um, uh, in talking about uh, Fannie Lou Hamer um, and her sexually focused beating um, that happened to her in the Winona jail in Mississippi in 1963, um, you know, it, to tell a story about the ways in which women have been consistently sexually assaulted within jails and prisons. So this question of, like, we talk about in the modern day, the carceral state and all that, like, people were talking about that then. People were talking about, you know, the injustice against Willie McGee, this man who was framed uh, by his long-term a white woman who coerced him into having a relationship with him and then threw him under the bus and then he was electrocuted. There's a whole history, it's a great book called The Eyes of Willie McGee. It's all about that case and what happened. And people's, the, uh, the Civil Rights Congress spent years trying to keep him from getting killed and that was a defense committee for Willie McGee. So we have that history and that legacy in our, in our, in our, um, in our history, in our very, you know, recent history and far back history. Um, and so when you think about Brisha Meadows, this young woman who, um, young girl who at 14 years old killed her father last year in July in Warren, Ohio, um, you know, and they were gonna try her as an adult. I mean, there was just no question. The, the prosecutors were considering it from the time she was in jail and in, in starting in July 28th to when they gave the decision in early December that they wouldn't try her as an adult. What changed? The only thing that changed is that people were raising bloody hell and yelling their heart, like, this is not fair, she should be free, drop the charges, make sure. People, they knew that they were being watched. I've been told directly by people who would know that the prosecution wanted this case, they wanted to do away with it. They did not want to, they wanted to not lose face, quote unquote, by not dropping the charges, because they didn't want to be seen as being influenced by, but the reason she's not being, she wasn't tried by as, as an adult is because of public popular support and public pressure. The reason why she got even a plea deal that is not, is coercive and I hate plea deals and all that is true, that little girl's family is relieved as hell because they can see the light at the end of the tunnel that in early 2018 they will have their daughter, niece, sister back. And while my politics are to say that, you know, as an abolitionist, I do not endorse plea deals, I don't want them, I don't, I'm, being an abolitionist does not make you into somebody who is, uh, you, abolitionists have to have uh, people who you're working alongside's interests at heart, and that must be the driver of what it is that you're doing. Your personal politics, you can articulate, and I do, but I also am in support of this family and what they want to do. And if you put your your kind of your you know cap in the in the ring to support people, you support them. Otherwise, I wouldn't have joined in uh, in in co-founding a defense committee for this girl if I didn't care what the parents and the family, you know what I mean? Like, so I, so I find, I have to, I, I find that I have to often like, you know, intervene in other people's desires for what they would like to see and remind everybody, not, not in our committee, because everybody in our committee sees that and understands that we're predominantly all abolitionists by uh, practice and, and ideology, but you know, other people on the outside, it's like, well, that's terrible and whatever. It's like, that is not a win. You know what? It's a win for that family. 
okay? Yeah, it's not a win for me. But it's, I, I don't see it as a win, quote unquote, in this campaign kind of organizing sense. But I see it as um, a relief for people who were in dire need of people to stand up for that girl in the light of, for us, for our committee, making the larger case that black girls and women are under attack on a regular basis. Black girls and women, trans and non-trans, are consistently being uh, you know, uh, the victims of state violence. While we are also the victims of interpersonal violence, those things are connected to each other. Um, and that we, we must defend our lives. Um, you know, uh, uh, Barbara Demis um, comes up with that term uh, when the, um, what is her, when they are doing, when Audre Lorde and all these black women are organizing in 1979 in Boston for the murders of these black women that were happening in the community, um, and they have this banner, and one of the things is we cannot live without our lives. And, um, and people attribute that to Audre Lorde, it's not. It's another, it's a white woman who was a, a very kind of a socialist, uh, a radical feminist um, who uttered that term. But it's absolutely true, we cannot live without our lives. This book is basically a testament to that. We cannot live without our lives. We have to fight and defend ourselves. Um, and, and defense committees are part of that lineage and that fight. And Joan Little is the chapter seven in this book. And that's perfect for people who want to learn more about the history of defense committees. They should read the book in order to understand that chapter. And what the coalition building of that moment uh, with the Black Panther Party working with now, you know what I mean? Like in real time to free a black woman prisoner who was defending herself against sexual violence, against being raped by a white guard, that that catapulted this like coalition building uh, happening and this fight for this woman's life is kind of remarkable. Um, yeah. We'll have in the write-up of this a link so that folks can donate to Brisha Meadows' ongoing campaign because she does have, I think, $40,000 that the family has to pay to cover. Uh, she's been sentenced to, what is it, six months? Six months of mental health, um, of mental health treatment. Um, the thing about it is that uh, she was sentenced before, she was put forward to go into a mental health evaluation back in, the, in late January, and she went to a private facility at that time, and she liked it in the sense that she felt like she she was, it was not jail in the, in the same way that she was in this jail. She had more freedoms and movement and ability. So she liked that place. So her family wants her to go back there. The issue is that it's a private facility, and that means they have to pay for it. If she had gone to a public facility, then the state would help pay. Um, and the public facilities, mental health facilities are terrible, yeah. it just across the board. So her family wants her to go to this private place, and it's going to cost them $70,000 for six months for her to be there. Um, and so uh, they had 30000 and we've been trying to raise um, uh, the remaining forty, uh, and we're halfway there now. So if people want to donate, they can go to um, GoFundMe uh, forward slash Brisha M, um, and they can donate uh, there to to helping this young woman be able to eventually heal, uh, repair her life, and go on from here. And my last question is, is what do you make of, I think it was 2016 or 2015 um, in the winter or fall of that year that the state of Alabama issued a formal apology to Reese Taylor, and I'm wondering what you make of that. Yeah. I'm sure for her descendants, that was helpful to them. 
I'm sure that they felt, um, you know, they might have felt some sense of vindication that what happened to their mother, grandmother, uh, sister, friend uh, was acknowledged to have been wrong um, because she was raped with impunity. Um, and so, you know, people deserve to have the harms that are done to them acknowledged. And I have, you know, I see people talking about apologies as though they're easy to make. And from the state level, they're not easy to make. They're not easy to get people to admit to have done real damage to communities and to people at the state level. That's why people fight for acknowledgement. People are not fighting for acknowledgement for some sort of like, you know, I don't know. People, it's important for you to have been seen as being wronged when you've been wronged. Think about it just as a human being. You know, somebody harms you and they don't acknowledge that and they walk around in the world as though nothing happened. First, it makes you feel like you're crazy because you realize you've been harmed and you're starting to wonder if it's not that big of a deal. But second of all, it's very important to have folks be clear about what has been done to you. And so I think that's good that she got a, a, an apology. I'm sure she appreciated it. If she's, I don't know if she was passed away by then or if she was still alive. I'm not sure. I believe she was still alive, Yeah, actually. which is amazing, which is amazing for like 60 years later for that to come into being. Um, you know, there are people that have gotten posthumous. They, they did a posthumous apology to Scottsboro boys. That's good. Their descendants deserve that. I think about Damo and how what it would mean would have had to have changed for the state to apologize for what happened to Damo. Yes. It would signify yes. so much actual movement. So right? true. Um, it's much more than just the words that are said. It's so, uh, it's so the, true. It's change in power is what it represents. It really yeah. does. And we were, all of us were part of the reparations struggle and fight here in Chicago. The fact that um, the mayor got up at in the, the halls of city council and said he, that the city was sorry for what they did to these men who were standing there mm -hmm. in that well. I mean, you know, I talked to Daryl afterwards and he said, you know, they told us this didn't happen, that we were crazy for it to happen. And then for the mayor to say it happened in front of all these people, like it's vindication, you know? And I, get, I guess, again, I only think that this, only people who organize with people who are directly impacted by harms I think understand the full import of this. I think when you're far removed from it, it's like, well, what the hell? They're just still gonna do the same thing. It's like, no, no, it matters to the people who were harmed. And if you were harmed, you'd want that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't want this podcast to end at all, but we're just at time. Um, so hopefully we'll have you on the show many more times in the future <laughs> if we could persuade you. Um, but. Yeah, I really just want to thank you so much for being on this on this podcast. And is there anything else? We definitely will uh, plug the um, the Brescia fundraiser. Um, and is there anything else that you wanted to plug right now um, before we end? And also, if there was a quote you wanted to to drive us home with? Sure. Um, thank you very much. Um, so. I think you know right now people can support Brescia. I think that there's um, uh, to people. I'm I'm gonna invite them to stay tuned um, for some stuff that will be coming up uh, in the near future around survived and punished, which is a collective that 
um, I'm a, a co-organizer and co-founder with um, that works around making sure to uplift and address the stories of uh, criminalized survivors of violence, people who are criminalized for survival and self-defense. Um, and so I de we've got some stuff that will be coming down the pike in the fall, I think, um, around documentation stories um, that we're going to be working on. And that's also in the light and in the um, I see as in the long tradition of Ida B. Wells and other people. Um, it's why I'm, I make zines all the time, um, even though I don't actually make them myself. I get other people to make them. them. I call them pamphlets. <laughs> like Ida B. Wells. And I'm like, I they're zines. Them, I call them pamphlets. Um, but I think, I do, I think they're a tradition. I think they're important. I think we've got to tell our own stories. I think I've learned over the years, I've been part of many defense committees and defense campaigns, and you know, the power of telling our stories and making the one, being the ones to set the narrative makes all the difference mm -hmm. so I think that's important mm -hmm. but so that's what I'll say and then the quote um, that I'm going to read is on uh, page 166 of the uh, hardcover um, and it's uh, a quote by a woman named Endesha Ida Mae well Holland um, who becomes uh, organizer with SNCC um, but comes from a, a kind of a, a history of sexual abuse and violence in her young young years she's raped at 11 years old by a white man um, after being lured to his house um, uh, by his, uh, I think, daughter or wife uh, for a babysitting job. Um, but she reads, she says this um, on page 166. Um, Folks used to tell how in the South, no white man wanted to die without having sex with a black woman, Holland said. It was just seen as part of life. And if you were black, you were always at the mercy of white people. You didn't need to be sitting babies or cleaning houses to fall victim to the white man's lust, she remembered. We could just ease as easily be picking cotton or walking to the store or spending money in the white man's store when the mood would take him and he'd take us just like that, like lightning striking. Um, and it says, like Fannie Lou Hamer, Holland understood that black women's bodies did not belong to themselves. They belonged to everyone, she said. And I just think that, you know, this book has lots of stories and not, not easily quotable in that kind of sense. But to me, that is the encapsulation of the, of the kind of the history and the context within which black women were resisting, not just the sexual violence that was happening to them, but the racist violence and just not having, um, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer's quote that a black woman's body was never hers alone. And frankly, we're still fighting that today. That we're still fighting being sexually assaulted with impunity. We're still fighting the ways in which our bodies are not our own. Um, uh, the easy access to us in various kinds of ways. The myths of unrapeability, which can't seem to completely you know, dissolve and vanish, even though we've been fighting so many years to make sure that we're seen as not just property, but persons. Um, and so, yeah, so that's that's the quote I, I pick. And I, I would really um, suggest that people read the autobiography of Indesha Holland if you want to understand black women, um, violence, sexuality, and the long black freedom struggle. It's a great, great, great autobiography. Thank yeah. you. I keep forgetting that we're hosting, and I'm just like, you can just see me now. I just like have my, my elbow in my face. Like um, but thank you so much again. And 
just as you are the ins- inspiration for many, many things, you were also one of the inspirations for this podcast, <laughs> um, the Lit Review, where we interview organizers. You know, in this, we always say in this moment of urgency, like you know, mass political education is key. We have to keep reading. Um, and I also, you know, created the postcard series, yes. the hashtag Miriam taught me. <laughs> one of the postcards says "Keep reading," and yes. so we always like to end each um, episode, you know, saying "Keep reading." Okay. So I'm gonna do our, I'm gonna, you know, bring us home with the outro, and awesome. then uh, at the end, when I give you a look. You can say keep reading for us. I'll do that. <laughs> okay, I'll cool. I'll do that. <laughs> All right. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Lit Review. Again, I'm one of your hosts, Monica Trinidad, here with Paige May. Um, and we just had an amazing conversation with Miriam Kaba about At the Dark End of the Street by Daniel McGuire. Um, special shout out to The Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Um, keep your eyes and ears out for another episode next Monday, um, same time, same place. Do you want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep reading, everybody.